friends, uh, we're, we're actually a minute or two before the scheduled start time, um, so it, it might be that one or two others come in, but we thought, we, we thought we'd begin. Uh, welcome to this seminar, uh, and um, it's, a bit, it's a bit warm in here, uh, so uh, we, we, I think we're going to keep the door open, aren't we, to try to let in a, a little bit of what air, air there is around. Um, I visited a, a school in a place called North Ormsby in Middlesbrough a, a couple of months ago. And uh, I, I'm in the diocese. Oh, sorry, I'm Stephen, I'm the Archbishop of York. Um, <laughs> I'll introduce the others in, in a minute. Um, so I, I visited this school. Middlesbrough is in the diocese where I serve. Now, I, I'm used to going to schools where Children have free school meals and the school provides them with a lunch. I'm used to going to schools where they have like a breakfast club so children can come and have a, have a proper breakfast before the school day starts. I remember when my kids were at school in Huddersfield, uh, primary school, we, we used to send them to school with a lunch box. Um, so, you know, we'd make up their lunch in the morning and off they'd go. What I hadn't really seen before until I went to this school in North Ormsby was, yeah, there was a breakfast club, and yeah, most of the children were on free school meals, but the children came to school with an empty lunchbox because there was a food bank in the school. Um, and so they came with an empty box, which they, when their mums or grandmas or whoever picked them up at the end of the day, they would go to, there were trestle tables in the playground um, and they would get some food to put into the box to take home so they'd have tea that night. I hadn't seen anything quite like that before. And, uh, and why am I chairing this panel? I don't know what we do about this. Um, but I'm so grateful, first of all, that the Trussell Trust are here making such a difference up and down our nation. And if I have any wisdom on this at all, it's that we will only tackle this shameful, shameful thing in our nation where families haven't got food on their tables. We'll only tackle it by tackling it together. Not by, yeah, there's things that government should be doing, and I'm sure we're going to come on to that. But, but it's no use just pointing the finger. Um, this has to be the work of whole communities where we in the churches have such an important part to play. Though let's be clear, not just in mobilising support to get the food to hand out, we must also be active in saying this is not how our society is meant to be. It's not meant to be like this. We're a wealthy nation. Um, and something has gone wrong and we need to work together to put it right. So that's the big theme uh, that we're exploring today and uh, I'll let me just introduce who's around the table, though I'll get them to introduce themselves properly in, in a moment. <coughs> First of all on my left is Emma Reavy who is uh, the CEO of the Trust. <coughs> Then we've got next to her Mike Royal, 
who is the General Secretary of Churches Together in England and was formerly the CEO, well he can tell you all this, the Cinnamon Network, which, which did a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, next to him is Baroness uh, Ruth Lister, uh, a, a, a Labour peer uh, sitting with me in the House of Lords. Um, and I'll come to you last, Jenny. And then on my right here, um, Israel Imani, who works for the Conservative Christian Fellowship. They're all going to, I'm going to invite all of them to speak for three or four and no more than five minutes and then I'll bang my gavel if I had one. Um, because we want to leave time for conversations and questions from the floor. But firstly, I want to uh, introduce Jenny, who, who's sitting on my right. Because uh, Jenny is somebody who has uh, used food banks. Um, and... It's really a privilege for us to have somebody who knows from that side, and maybe others of us have here as well, I'm not suggesting we haven't, but it's really good for us to have somebody who's, who's had to use food banks. Um, so Jenny, please tell us first of all a little bit about yourself, who you are, and where you're from, but perhaps you could begin this time together by sharing with us something of your experience as somebody who used a food bank and what that's like. Okay, so um, I'm Jenny, um, I'm from Hampshire. Um, as you said, I, I have had to use food banks in the past and I'm on universal credit um, and at the moment I'm, I'm using my experience to campaign against poverty. So I had to use a food bank three or four times back in 2019. Walking through the doors that first time was very nerve-wracking and not something I ever thought I would have to do. But at the time, I was in temporary emergency accommodation and my universal credit claim had just started, so I was living on £291 a month and therefore I had no choice. In the last week of each month, I simply had no money left. I was a client of Citizens Advice at the time and they referred me to my local food bank in Hampshire and reassured me that it would be helpful and it really was. After getting up the courage to walk through the door, <coughs> the experience could not have been better. The lady who greeted me sat me down, got me a coffee and cake, while we had a chat about what food and toiletries I needed. She also made sure I was getting support. In hindsight, walking into the food bank that day changed everything for me. I realized that actually it was okay to ask for help and that people weren't gonna judge me for being at the food bank. There is a real stigma around being on benefits and using food banks, but in my experience, people wouldn't claim benefits or use food banks unless they really had to. So whilst the food banks provide a fantastic service, they are not the solution and nobody should be in a position to have to use one. Yeah, th thank you, Jenny. One, one of my great predecessors, uh, a man called William Temple, uh, said famously the, ch the church is the one organisation which exists for the benefit of its non-members and I guess Trussell Trust is one of the few organisations which exists to put itself out of business um, so what changes would you like to see made Jenny to our social security system in including you know, the, what, <coughs> yeah. what, what, what changes would you like to see to, to try to improve 
Um, so I will start with a positive comment here, because I was really glad when the package of support for cost of living was announced, and it certainly relieved some of the concerns I have around being able to afford essentials in the coming months. But I do think that there is an element of uncertainty which is unhelpful. For instance, there is no real clarity about when the payments will be made, and when I speak to my peers, there is a lot of confusion about what the energy bill really is. I don't live extravagantly and currently, currently live to within a few pounds of my monthly budget. It is very important for me to know exactly what payments are coming in to ensure I can budget accordingly and the uncertainty has a negative effect on my mental health. I don't need to sound ungrateful as the measures will certainly help but further clarity is needed. With regards to the social security system, the yearly increase needs to be in line with the cost of living, otherwise people who are already struggling will be pushed further into poverty. Also, the length of time to get the first universal credit payment, which is five weeks, needs to be decreased. Mm -hmm. When I applied, I had no money at all, and I had no choice but to take the advance payment, so I was immediately in debt to the government. At a time when I was in a mental health crisis, the last thing I needed was to be in debt. These advance payments mean lower monthly payments until the debt is paid, pushing people into a cycle of poverty. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so we are, in case you hadn't noticed, in Parliament this morning. Um, what would you like MPs to be thinking about when they represent you and people in situations like yours? Well, I think one of the most important things is the terminology that is used. It really frustrated me that when the universal credit cut was discussed, it was almost always referred to as the £20 a week uplift. And whilst that is factually correct, it belittles the effect of the cut, as many people don't see £20 as significant. What would have had more impact is if it was discussed in terms of percentages. Saying that there is going to be a 20% cut is equally factual, but would have changed people's perception of the impact. I would also like MPs to try and put themselves in the position of people claiming benefits when making changes. How would they feel if at the end of the month they had an empty fridge and no credit on their energy meters and had to choose how to spend their last few pounds? Will it go on food or to pay for energy? That's a really simplified example as it isn't just heating or eating. There are so many essential items people have to buy. MPs need to consider if they are making savings in one area, for example, <coughs> not increasing benefits in line with inflation, this will have a negative effect on people's mental health and also physical health, and therefore impact other services, such as the NHS. So saving money in one area means having to spend money elsewhere, which makes no sense to me. Thank, thank you, Jenny. When, when are you going to stand? So... Finally, what, what do you think, I mean it's a huge question, but what do you think needs to happen so that no one ever needs to turn to a food bank in the future again? That's a huge question with the shortest answer. Give them enough money to afford food. Thank you. Jenny has put her finger on the heart of this. Uh, we are living in a society where there are, tragically, a very large number of people who simply don't have enough money to put food on their table. But I'm now going to ask each of our four panel members to share 
few thoughts. Um, and we're going to start with Emma. So Emma, tell us just a briefly who, uh, just a bit more about who you are sure. and where you fit in, uh, and then we'd love to hear from you. Wonderful, thank you. Yes, um, so I, I'm Emma Reedy, Chief Executive of Trust and Trust. And at the Trust and Trust, we support a network of over 1,300 food bank centres across all four nations um, of the UK. Um, because, oh, I'm realising I might need to bring the mic over. Yeah. I'm never knowingly quiet. <laughs> Those of you who know me. Um, is that better? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, sorry to say, I, we, we support a network of over 1,300 food bank centres across the UK to provide emergency support to people in crisis and then to work together to campaign for a UK where everyone has enough money to afford the essentials. Um, and I, there's not much. I can say after Jenny, because really Jenny said it all from my perspective, just so clear and so powerful from your experience and, and what needs to change, it's, it's quite simple. Um, but to look at the scale um, of what we're seeing across our network might be quite helpful. Um, and particularly with the current cost of living crisis affecting all of us and people having to choose between heating and eating, the, the question of financial resilience has really never been more pressing. Last year, um, so April 2021 to March of this year, food banks in our network distributed over 2.1 million emergency food parcels to people in crisis. Um, that's a 14% increase to before the pandemic, and about 800,000 of those parcels were for children. And I, it's, it, I always find that statistic the hardest one to say. When you're thinking about that scale of emergency food being provided for, for children. And we know that certain groups of people are much more likely to have to come to a food bank. Two thirds of, of people who had to come to a food bank last year have a, a disability that is limiting their daily lives three times higher in prevalence within the, the working age population. So significant over-representation of, of disabled people in having to come to, to food banks. We know that as a single parent, you're four times more likely to have to come to food bank and be part of the working age population. So there's some key drivers, structural drivers, that are causing people not to be able to afford the essentials and therefore having to turn to food banks. And I wanted to, to, with this esteemed audience we have today, just talk about the incredible role of the church in providing these services. So our food banks, I can say quite truthfully, would not exist. The Trust of Trust Network would not exist without local churches. It is something delivered with local churches. Across the UK, almost 12,000 churches support our food banks. And in fact, 800 of our food bank centres are, are based in churches. And on average, each food bank has about 15 churches that wrap themselves around that food bank and providing leadership, financial support, food donations. It's, and, and as we've seen an increase in needs in our communities, so we have seen churches step forward and step up to meet that need, which is incredible and, and something we are so, so grateful for. And we also bring together people of all faiths and none working alongside us in the delivery of food banks and that's something that we really celebrate 
as an organization. And people come together inspired and united in the belief that no one should be hungry and that everyone should be able to afford the essentials and that we need to take action. And I think that is very powerful and we saw that during the, the pandemic. So coming to the, the, the question at hand today about what, what can we do, I think particularly for the group of us that are here today to, to think about, we, we see through our food banks the outpouring of love and compassion from the cup of tea that it, Jenny, you spoke so powerfully about, like the courage it takes to come into a food bank that first time, it's, it's extraordinary courage. And what I've seen in food banks time and time again is that that radical welcome, that space to sit and have a cup of tea, that connection, that offer of community, that offer of compassion, is so much more than food. It is a, a, an act of, of solidarity. And in Hosea, we are called uh, to both love and justice. <coughs> and I think we see the love and the compassion in there. But I think part of our conversation for today and part of our responsibility is to think about what, what do we mean by justice in this context. Mm -hmm. 2.1 million emergency food aid parcels. The mass distribution of food aid taking place in our communities. And when you speak to volunteers in our food banks, they will tell you the thing that they find hardest is the utter insufficiency of a food parcel to answer the crises that somebody is experiencing. <coughs> yes, there's the offer of help and advice and support, but still somebody could have their full entitlement. <coughs> somebody could be given emergency food in every service month and still not be making ends meet at the end of the month and still finding themselves in financial crisis. So as Christians, as parliamentarians, as church leaders, what does justice look like in that situation? And, and what structural changes need to take place? And how do we ensure that our social security safety net is at the very least holding people out of destitution, <coughs> holding people and enabling them to have enough to be able to afford those essentials we all, each and every one of us, need to survive. And I believe and I absolutely agree with, with the Archbishop that this is something we do together. It's not just on government, it's not just on local churches, it's not just on charities, it's on us all. And the hope I got during the pandemic was we saw we changed the way we lived, the way we worked, every aspect of our life to protect one another. How do we continue that as we face the challenge of the cost of living crisis, how do we protect one another from unjust circumstances and ensure we all have enough to make ends meet? Emma, thank you very much. Uh, so, Mike, if I could invite you just to introduce yourself and make some introductory remarks. Certainly, yes. So, um, uh, my name is uh, Mike Royal, I'm <laughs> General Secretary of Churches Together in England, and uh, I, um, I live in Birmingham. <coughs> And uh, it's a great pleasure to, to be here. Do you want me to say more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, I'm um, keeping an eye on the clock. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm conscious that when, um, when economists speak about inflation, they talk about inflation running somewhere between 8 and 11% at the moment. The truth is, is, is that the more impoverished you are, the higher that inflation rate. And so for many people, 
it's probably more like 15 to 20 percent and um and so as usual it hits those who are least prepared the hardest um i'm also conscious that the church spent two and a half years over the pandemic really stepping up to the mark and making an incredible difference i can tell you a story of the own church that i'm involved in and we had a, a, a knock on the door from the police and we were a little bit worried because um the folks that go to our church weren't that good at wearing masks, and we thought we were in trouble. And they said, actually, we want to give you a grant of £5,000, because your church has been open every day, it's been serving meals for those who are in need. And most of the people around where we are are in houses of multiple occupation. If it wasn't for the church, then actually they simply would not have eaten. But what, what struck me most about that experience and just that, that two years of the pandemic, that we kept our church open, we kept our cafe kind of going, um, we kept our support groups going, was as that people felt like they could come. they pay a pound if they had it, if they didn't, no problem. They got a lovely rounded meal at lunchtime. But most of all, they had that sense of belonging and being part of the community. And what actually did was blur the lines between those who were, who were visitors from the community and those who were part of that community of faith. And I think it's those kinds of churches that we need in this moment. But I'm conscious that lots of church leaders are really tired. So I do think churches need to think about their programming. They need to ask themselves what they need to stop doing what they need to start doing and what they need to continue doing, but perhaps doing differently in the light of the current circumstance. I have the privilege of chairing uh, a charity that works with vulnerable young people at risk um, of, um, of, of gang uh, 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 involvement um, called First Class Legacy. And we were sitting as trustees the other day and we were talking about preparing ourselves for the autumn and winter, because we know that the needs that the families and the young people and their siblings that we're working with are mounting up even as we speak. And so we're asking ourselves, how do we bolt on um, some of um, the provision of food and even money um, for those who are in need, or even helping them to pay for their heating um, bills? I, I think that the other thing to say about the church is this, is sometimes we try to reinvent the wheel when we don't need to. There are great models of best practice out there. Trust will trust work on a hub model, as I understand it, which means that as a church you can open a food bank and be connected with other churches as well who are doing exactly the same. And there are a host of other organisations working around this area of poverty. I think the final thing I want to say is, is this, is we can also learn from others. In Birmingham, um, in on Soho Road, which is just a great diverse community, there's the Nishkan Centre, which is actually um, a, a gudwara um, that serves <laughs> on the Soho Road over a thousand meals a week. There is no church, as I, far as I know, that is serving that much. 
They are such a blessing to our city. We can learn so much for them. So my message is, let's work together. Let's not reinvent the wheel, but adopt the best practice product, pr projects. And finally, let's make sure we're learning from others too. Mike, thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, Baroness Lister, welcome. And if perhaps you could, again, tell us a little bit about who you are, then share with us some thoughts about how churches and civic society are able to work together on this. Um, yeah, my name is Ruth Lister. Um, I'm uh, honorary president of the Child Poverty Action Group and the former director of it, uh, an academic who's written uh, extensively about poverty. Uh, and as the Archbishop said, I'm a um, member uh, a Labour peer, but I'm not speaking here on behalf of the party. <laughs> um, I would like to talk about um, financial resilience, um, but I think it's important that we take as our starting point the fact that, that has already been made so powerfully that food insecurity reflects the fact that far too many members of our society are living in poverty. That is, they simply do not have enough money to meet the needs of today's society. The situation which, as we've heard, is getting worse with the cost of living crisis. Now, churches, civil society groups, and also local authorities do need to work together to maximise income wherever possible. For example, through welfare rights advice, which in some cases does happen through food banks, mm -hmm. and through ensuring all those who need help know how they can seek support from their local authority, be it from the household support, support fund, which the government keeps topping up, or local welfare assistance schemes, uh, which replace the national social fund, but which unfortunately uh, a significant minority of local authorities don't run, as they're not mandatory. And local authorities should be encouraged to adopt what is often called a cash-first approach rather than help in kind. And in the words of Greater Manchester Poverty Action, this maximises dignity, choice and control and reflects that lack of income is the primary cause of financial hardship. Now, the emphasis on dignity is, I think, important. In my academic work, which is rooted as far as possible in what people in poverty themselves have to say, um, I have argued for a, a human rights approach to poverty, which places dignity at its heart and has been promoted by the United Nations. And such an approach reflects how many people with experience of poverty emphasise the importance of being recognised and treated as fellow human beings with dignity and respect and that they are listened to as the experts of experience, which we've heard from Jenny, um, can, can bring to the table such important perspectives that people like myself who have not experienced poverty, I can only learn from them. Um, because all too often, people in poverty feel that they're dehumanised and humiliated. Um, and although I'm not a Christian, uh, such an approach strikes me as being very much in line with Christian values and is crucial to how churches and civic society provide assistance and support. And that's reflected in actually what we've already heard from all the other contributors. But also I was struck by something I read in my local newspaper, the Nottingham Post, 
Um, and it was about a, a, a local group of volunteers um, called uh, Share the Love. And one of them told the post, people love the food, but what they like the most is the way we interact with them. We treat them like our own and we don't talk down to them. And I think that's a really important message. Um, people who rely on benefits, whether in or out of work, face a long, hard winter. As um, Jenny has told us, benefits are lagging well behind inflation. And the additional one-off payments, which not everyone will receive because they're very much rough justice, um, will only go so far to help, welcome as they are. At the same time, uh, as the general public feels the pinch, I suspect donations are going to go down. Um, and this will cause some creative thinking among uh, food bank and other providers. And I was struck by a recent piece by Gordon Brown, in which he said that many faith groups he knows are discussing how to turn their buildings into places in which people can just simply come and feel warm. And that actually could be a number one priority for many people, this winter, just somewhere where they can be warm, because they won't be able to afford to turn their own heating on. Finally, I very much welcome that the Trust of Trust sees food banks as agents of change at both local and national level. Back in the 1980s, when I worked at the Tough Hockey Action Group and poverty soared, most charities who provided services didn't see their role in that way. Um, they, were, they didn't see themselves as agents of change, but as poverty soared, they realised increasingly that uh, if they didn't brought, that they had to draw to the attention of government the evidence of the hardship that they were trying to alleviate. Um, because otherwise they were simply acting as sticking plasters. Um, charities should not have to act as polyfiller for the holes in government support. And thus it's crucial that churches and civic society together use the knowledge they have, or you have, to try to achieve change at both local and national level in just the way that Jenny is doing. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And um, our, our final contributor is Israel Imani, um, who's going to talk to us uh, a little about what the government has done to date uh, to build financial resilience and again how churches can work together with government. Israel, thank you. Thank you. So I'm a councillor in Hertfordshire and have been for about seven years. And um, I'm chairman of two housing committees, which have been a real eye-opener. Um, I was on my own with my son when he was only 31 now, so it was a long time ago. Um, and I remember, and I think the universal credit then, it was called income support, and I hated it. And he had to go into the post office and then sent it, and they always looked at you strange and said something that was sarcastic. Mm -hmm. But it was, I didn't realise how lucky I was that I had a good support network. And then I got a council flat, and I remember getting the call, and it wasn't great benefit of life. It was, now I can afford to go to university, and I can afford to become the person that I believe God has intended me to be. And I did that. And I say that as a precursor, because I remember one year when I was a student, my whole block of flats didn't get an energy bill for a year. We didn't get any, a gas bill for a year. And when it came through, it was £120 for the whole year. Um, when I became a councillor and 
started um, speaking to people like maybe circles I'd been out of touch with. I worked in the fashion industry and it was very glamorous, it was great and it was very well paid. And then I started meeting people and I couldn't believe how much the world had and hadn't changed. Because I remember when I got my £120 gas bill for the year, minimum wage was about £3.25. And now it's talking about a little triple, but the energy bill is ten times that. And I was surprised with my background how I didn't know that or how I'd managed not to see how the world had changed. Um, so we work with my council, and what I find is the government has done well, but not many people know about it, or not many people really know what's going on there. There's still work to do. Um, for instance, there's the efficient energy scheme. So if somebody in your household receives any benefit, you have to be the homeowner, you can be a tenant, um, the government will come and insulate your house very well, change your boiler, and all your heating system for free, so that you're not spending as you know significant chunks of your income um, on just keeping warm or cooking or just doing the everyday things. But surprisingly, not many people know that. And um, the cost of that's probably you know between ten and fifteen thousand pound grant, and that is available to anybody who's got a person, a member of their household that is on benefits. And also just challenging councils. My council, I think, are quite innovative. So they've done things like um, build council houses for social rent, because I don't believe in affordable rent, it's not really affordable, but social rent, um, using a passive house system. And that's a German um, design for home building. And it means that they um, control the airflow for where the house is built. And as long as you follow the pattern, your energy bill will be 100 pounds a year. But we need more of those type of things and government really supporting councils um, to champion those type of things. So houses are slightly more to build, but they are the things that are going to make a difference because I think we're always going to be battling with balancing income versus you know the cost of living, but we need longer term solutions like passive house, like social housing, like um, efficient energy to make sure that if you're finding it hard today, you're not going to find it hard tomorrow, and your children aren't going to find it hard tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So they're the right things, but people, I'd say not enough people know that things like that are out there. There's also um, discretionary payments, and again, often people don't approach the council until they're really desperate. Mm -hmm. And more people need to know that, you know, approach councils early, because they will help you, and there are pots of money. Um, to help you through difficult times and also getting the message out that sometimes people are having a hard time from their fault of their own. Um, you can become ill, that can happen to anybody, and suddenly you lose your income or you lose your job because you're unwell, through no fault of your own, or because you've been made redundant or a relationship is broken down. Let's see what my chance is people approaching us because a relationship is broken down and it's no fault of their own, but suddenly they're going to really. Tricky situation, and the thing is always we wish you'd come to us a little bit earlier. Um, and, and that's, I think, the message that the government has got to get out that there is support. Sometimes not support for the immediate thing, which is where I see the church um, picking things up, holding people's hands, and helping them get through that day. But longer term support to ensure that um, you don't have to live in. 
crisis um, eternally. I think that's some of the stuff that the government's done, but not enough people know, know about it. Thank you very much indeed. So we've got about 20 minutes for some conversation together. I mean, uh, 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 and Israel, we certainly mustn't make you the spokesperson for the government because no. you're not. Um, uh, you're not. Um, but, uh, but certainly rattling around my head is still what Jenny was saying earlier about, I mean, let's face it, it seems to me just to be bonkers that when you get your first, you know, your first universal credit payment, you have to wait so many weeks, which means you're you know, you're, that 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 seems to me that that feels to me like that must be a simple thing to solve. Um, well, it feels to me like that. But um, uh, if we could have two or three questions from the floor, um, and then I'll share them out amongst the panel. I'm not going to get every member of the panel to comment on every question because then we'll deal with maybe one question <coughs> if we're lucky. Um, so, so if you'd like to. Make a contribution, please, gentlemen. Uh, here, I, I, I do some work with some advice, advising people, uh, and I will be tomorrow and Thursday for Rochdale, Oldham, Trafford, and Stockport. Some advice on the phone to talk to people and booking for the food banks. Yeah. One of the issues I feel is the fact that payments are monthly, and I feel that for a lot of people, they should opt for the alternative payments. Because, let's face it, if I had money, whether it be salaried or whatever, the inclination would be to spend for the first 25 days. Yeah. And then suddenly panic. You haven't got any money for the last few days. I wonder if the Trust and Trust or anybody else has done any research to see when people are getting desperate for food. I was speculating it's often on the 27th, 28th, and 29th, 30th of the month. And what people can do. Um, about that to have alternative payments, I would love to have time to go back to them and say, have you been on to your journal, have you been to your work coach, and tried to sort out for every month, every fortnight rather than month. Okay, so that's a question about when the payment should be made. Did you, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I was going to ask about, somebody mentioned rough justice, and one of the things that we, as we walk the journey with people weekly, daily sometimes, some of, the, some of the punitive measures that people face all the time, sanctions when people already have mental health issues, um, and the really rough justice that's being meted out to people, and those people who just fall through the net, refugee and asylum seekers who are on the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest, what, what's going to happen to help them through this winter? Thank you. We just have one more question, gentlemen here. Yeah, um, I'm Ezekiel Lawale. I coordinate <coughs> the Dodgy churches in Nottingham and the GP. How many times I go home with tears? Particularly um, for the children, and I want to see what can we do, both in the short term and the long term. Children are the most, on most victims of this. Uh, in many ways, and I think our men, I don't know what policy we can do because again the next is the women who have to end up looking after the children alone by themselves, all right, and many times I see some men wanting to commit suicide because they can't just afford it. So it, it's, I think it's a big problem that I feel that 
in all our communities. What we have today needs to be what is in practice, where the churches are actively involved, <coughs> not just in executing policies, but in making some policies. Because here are the people who actually are part of them. And so that's really my own uh, thinking. And what we're doing not here now is actually to constructively engage. We engage with the leadership of the council every month, every three months. We engage with the police because our people in Nottingham, for instance, it's like the chairman, the young people are just angry and we blame them for being violent, but they are, it's like they, they don't know how to speak about what they're going through. They are hopeless. So we engage with the police and things are happening now. The police are saying, we can come to the police. We will support you, come, and we support you through the university, we would uh, give you salary, and then you will finish your work with us. And things that Thank you. So, so there's three areas for us to have some reflections on. Ruth, I wonder whether you'd like to start off about just seen that rather kind of focused point about when people receive their payments and whether receiving the payments differently might make a difference. Uh, very much so. Um, I fought very hard in this place to get payments fortnightly as the default, but, but lost. Um, uh, and I think it's it's actually. It relates back to what you said as well about the five-week wait, because mm. that reflects, in fact, not just at monthly payments, but monthly assessment, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the problems with universal credit flow from that. Mm -hmm. So I do think um, we need to look against that, but you're right, I mean, that people should know, um, be able to ask more easily to have fortnightly payments as a default. I mean, it's not, it's not about poor budgeting, it's just, it just makes sense. And actually, but the government's view is that, oh, well, we've got to get people ready for work, and most people are now paid monthly. Well, actually, people on very low wages often aren't paid monthly. Um, and um, it, 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 it takes away the security that Social Security should be providing. So I'm very, uh, it's a very important point that has much wider ramifications than perhaps uh, suggested. Um, and could I just say on children yes. that, and I've got more of a question about this next week, that all the extra support the government have provided, <coughs> which has been welcome, you know, during the pandemic and now, none of it, in terms of social security, has been specifically for children. So regardless of the, you know, whether you've got five children or no children, you get the same amount of extra money. And of course, that it's not surprising that those of children are increasingly having to turn to food banks. Thank you. Uh, and then, Mike, do you want to come in? I mean, I, I want to be able to particularly come in on the, the rough justice collection of issues that were raised here, but you may want to say something on one of the others. I, I think, think, but I think don't I, answer all three. No, way. <laughs> I think I'd like to say something about the children, if that's yeah, okay. Just, yeah. just, just because yeah. uh, uh, previous on one of the... Uh, uh, pioneers of, of, of transforming lives for good to run, like, work with children and young people um, at risk of, of exclusion from school and generally vulnerable. I, I, I really love what, what you've said there, there, Doctor. I do feel that so much now is being put on the church in terms of, um, of, of, of young people um, that, that we've got to look at core funding, that activity, Many of the holiday activities that have been run 
in our towns and in our cities are being run now by churches. Um, historically, churches have, all, have always been one of the biggest youth providers of youth work. Um, and, and, and all that funding has disappeared. Local authority work has disappeared around youth work. Sometimes churches are the, are, are, you know, the last uh, person standing in town. Um, so we've got to kind of fund this stuff properly. I know, again, I, I come back to First Class Legacy, many of the holiday activities that they're putting on um, are not only giving children something to do during the summer, but they're feeding them too. That needs to be taken seriously and it needs to be core funded. And so that would now be my appeal to government. If government are no longer going to fund local authorities to do that, and I believe they should, by the way, then don't, uh, don't think that churches and other faith groups can run these things um, and, uh, with a money tree from the bottom of the garden. That doesn't exist. Thank you. Israel, do you want to comment? I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some comments for the questions about you know, those who are, left, who are really left behind. Um, but again, you may want to comment on one of the others as well. No, I think there's, I mean, I have to be honest, I think there's still some work to be done on that. Um, it's, I think there's a lot of focus on benefits, <coughs> but sometimes you can be working full time and take home the exact same amount as somebody that works in benefits, but then there's no support for you anywhere. And I think that's why I'm more for reducing the cost of living as opposed to constantly chasing it and um, trying to tackle it. But I think for those, you know, that are in the case that you've got voice, that it's something that's never discussed that I think should be discussed. Um, that actually if you're working full time, you're often, you can be worse off than people that are unemployed. And also people that are in the trap, which I know that I was in for a while, that you actually can't to go to work because the work-related costs are so high. And my first job, I took home £750 a month and I spent £300 getting there and £350 on childcare. So I had to have a second job. And because I wasn't on benefits anymore, they just, you know, there the, the wasn't anything. Um, but some of the church networks were really good at that. But it's a concept that people would never understand unless you've been in that position um, and encourage though that there are now little pots of money and there were no feedbacks then because you know that might have saved me having to do night shifts and put my son and my friend on Friday night just to do those two years so you can get out of that um, cycle but um, there's lots of more innovative solutions that have to be thought of because I think um, Kenny will agree that you actually don't always want somebody giving you money. You want to be able to go out and make your own money and with that make your own choices about where you live, what you buy, what you provide for your, your family and that's been taken away. So I do think the focus should be on reducing the cost of living for everyone um, so that people have freedom to make their own choices. And one thing that I like to do is, like I said, when I got cancer for that I can afford to go to university and I can choose what job I do and um, what choices I make for my son and I can now choose where we live as opposed to having all of those things that tainted to you. And it did feel like a bit of a prison actually. And it's those conversations that are not really 
had because unless you've been in that situation, <coughs> and when you are in that situation, you actually don't want to talk about it um, because you feel there's a bit of a stigma, and sometimes there is a bit of a stigma. And one speaks, and if you're having a lot of money, everybody wants to speak to you. Everybody is open to work, people want on their panels, and they want to know about you, they want to know how to do it. So really, they should be speaking to you when you're on your way up to say this is what the journey looks like. And I've always said that communities actually have the solutions for their problems, but what they don't have is a microphone. And that's why we're relying on you know, your MPs and engaging with them. And what I would really love to see, it's never happened. I've been in council for seven years, I've never been approached by a church to say that collectively we see the existing issues and we'll help you write the paper give you the background because we've got them in the house but we don't have the platform so they're more um, smarter ways of engaging. What doesn't help is people that shout at you and actually you don't want to get to the point where the church is known for what they're against. You will need to get to the point where you're known for what you're for mm. and then people will want to speak to you and you will have influence and you will change society and you will change lives. That was a very answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Emma, I promise I'll come to you first next time, but we're going to feed in a couple of other questions, and you may want to come into some of these, but I think I saw at least one more hand up. I think we can just take two more. Yeah, so thank yeah. you. Uh, thanks to the panel, especially to Jenny, for everything that you shared. I feel it's been a really good overview of the state of affairs we're in at the moment. And I suppose my question is about how you began speaking in the doing it together thing. My um, experience is that churches will always be involved where there is a need in, in practical on the grounds work of food banks and partnering with trust and other, in, in other groups. And, and yet we've also heard that, that there is no dignity in being given something that gives you little choice and that, at least from Jenny's perspective, one of the things that provides more dignity is to have the income that provides you and allows you dignity and choice. So, um, and, and Mike was very helpful in reminding us that the, that the inflation rates at the moment are so much more catastrophic for those at the bottom of the pile. And, and my understanding is that next year the government is uh, indicating that there will be a, a change in the, in the universal credit, but that it will be based on inflation rates in, in September this year before the catastrophic energy price rises in October. And so even when that happens, it's very unlikely to, uh, to maintain that level of, of, of need. So as churches, how do we take the experiences of working alongside those who most need, elevate their voices, but in, in a way that does it together? Because there's all sorts of small campaigns. You know, I work for the Baptist Union. We work with the Methodists and the URC. There are other groups that are doing some really interesting work on this. But it is that together voice in an environment in which it is particularly difficult to make voices heard at the moment, bluntly. And we've seen that through okay. the assignment. We've got, we've got the question. But yeah, we've got the question. How, how do we mobilise around that togetherness? Um, yeah. We've got the question. Thank you. And, and I'm afraid I don't think there's time for any others. Um, but was anybody, if anybody's got a quick one, there's nobody... Right, okay, so, so I want to feed in a question as well with, on the back of that. I mean, I noticed, I think, in Wales this week, was it? There's, there's, a, there's a first experiment of a rollout of universal, what's known as universal basic income, a totally different way of approaching this. Um, and I wondered whether, well, I promise we'll come to Emma first. 
So Emma, whether you'd like to answer that question, then, uh, then other panellists may have a quick word about other, other things that we need to dare to, um, to think about as ways of a step change in the way we look at this. Well, again, I potentially think I'm going to see links. Rough justice. I, you know, oh, can move the microphone? Oh, sorry. Uh, potentially links something to do with, with rough, rough justice and, uh, and universal basic income and then the role of, of what we can do. We have a, a system at the moment that is a cap on benefits. It says actually if you have multiple children, two child limit. Um, that, that, that caps, and, and I think we need to be talking about a floor under which no one in our country is able to fall. Because then if you're having a conversation with somebody and deductions need to be applied, we've taken out a loan and deductions need to be made. We're looking at, actually, we can't make those deductions mm -hmm. because you will be destitute. Mm -hmm. I'm not able to keep yourself warm, mm -hmm. have food, keep yourself we can't do that so we won't make that deduction others you may be able to make a deduction um, others you may be able to pay back a loan we need to have an agreement which I think exists in our souls that we won't let our neighbours fall below a level but it's not hard coded into our systems and that we need to call for because it could be that it's about increasing incomes for some people and it could be as Israel says about reducing costs but whatever it is it has to be we don't let people fall below a level. So we have a benefits cap, what's the benefits limit? And I think that's some of the thinking behind things like universal basic income and minimum income standard. For me, the system is less consequential than the, the practice, which is thus far and no further, those citizens in our country be allowed to fall. How do we, as a church, that, that resonates, I think, with our sense of justice, with God's sense of justice. How do we have one voice around that? Thank you. T time is racing on, so I'm going to give. I'm going to allow each each of the panelists, and I really will stop you if you go over the time. Each of them has a minute to make a further comment they wish to make, uh, either generally or from the questions we've heard that they've not yet had a chance to speak on. Mike, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first, and I want to now address the whole thing of, of rough, rough justice. I think one of the things, one of the attitudes that we need to break, generally as a society, is this myth of the undeserving poor. Yeah. Um, that actually what I see in communities is people really working hard to put food on the table, to make sure <coughs> that their children have a rounded education. Yes, of course there will be those who take advantage, but the vast majority of people are trying to do the best for their family. And we have to stop this myth that people are where they are because they deserve to be where they are. We've got to break it in our language and in our attitudes, and I think that will help us hugely.
should be a social security system that provides sufficient for decency, to live a decent life, and security. And those are the, the kind of two tests, the main tests, I think, anything. And I would love, love it if the churches came together this winter, because it, it, poverty is going to be such an issue this winter, to make that case, in, obviously in the way they wish to make it, or you wish to make it, and not forgetting the groups that fall through the net, like asylum seekers that you mentioned, because one consequence of the Nationality and Borders Act would be more people with no recourse to public funds, more destitution, uh, and we really cannot um, countenance that. Thank you. And finally, Emma. Um, I, I, I think I always come back to hope, and I think it's important particularly as we go into winter that I'm so deeply concerned about. Mm. If you had told us in advance what the pandemic would look like, none of us would have imagined we'd be able to come through that. Uh, and we did by, by working together, mm -hmm. by, by supporting one another, by, my, I say, preferring the needs of one another. And there's something in that, 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 that at the very heart of community, is, is about how do we reach out to protect one another and support one another and if that, that's how we work together it's, it's on that point that we build policy that will last and that transforms lives and, and so I have hope because we have done it and we can do it again Thank you, so um, as, as we draw this seminar to a close could I thank you very much for um, your attendance and your engagement with these you know, hugely, hugely pressing issues in the life of our nation. Uh, and on your behalf, uh, say a particular but very heartfelt public thank you to the Trussell Trust, but with whom all our churches are, are working so closely, but who provide energy, expertise, organisation on the ground, which, which helps us do something that we long to stop doing, um, but in the meantime are absolutely committed to... And let's be honest, I think we do see things getting worse at the moment. We have to be, we have to be clear about that. But a big thank you to the Trussell Trust. Um, uh, uh, thank you so much, all, all the panellists, for the things you've said. Um, Mike, I think particularly, you know, the myth of the undeserving poor, that is something I, I find I come across so, so often, and it is so, so, so distressing. Um, uh, no, nobody chooses um, to, to, to end up in the way that people end up. Um, then, just it, 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 and to, to rise to the challenge that you gave the churches Israel about 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 being positive, I, I do believe that what we need to do in the churches is is to present to the world what I'm going to picking up on Emma's phrase a narrative of hope. A hopeful way of living together in this nation and in our world. Um, uh, though I do say, with a smile on my face, that I found in my ministry um, with politicians across the spectrum, when I say something that they agree with, uh, they say to me how good it is that the church is speaking out <laughs> on, moral, on moral issues. <laughs> When I say something they disagree with, they say the church shouldn't be meddling in politics. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. uh, and that's a bit of a frustration yes. because the Christian faith is about the whole of life. Yes. Um, it, 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 it's not in a little box called Sunday morning. Oh, yeah. 
it, it's about the whole of life. Yeah. And therefore it must be, you know, and politics is, is morality. It's about how we, it's the good ordering of our world for the sake of the gospel and for the world that God made and God loves, and of which we are stewards, not owners, not masters. And, and so there's big, big, big challenges that we have to make to the way our world is ordered. We still live in a world where we take it, we kind of take it as read, that there's very, very, very rich people and there's very, very, very poor people. Well, no, we don't need to take that as read. That, that is, there's not meant to be that huge gap like that. Um, uh, you know, what Bible are people reading? Yeah. So, um, so we, we do need to present a narrative of hope, but we also need to say sometimes that's going to be deeply uncomfortable yeah. to some people across the spectrum of politics. We're going to upset people. So be it. We don't set out to upset people. What we set out to do is woo them with the beauty of the gospel and the vision of what the world could be like. Mm -hmm. So, final thought. Um, uh, the word economy. Now, as most of you in the room will know, uh, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek. So whenever you see a word in English, sometimes it's good to think, oh, I wonder what the Greek word is behind that. So whenever you read the word family in the Bible, not in every case, but in most cases, whenever you read the word family, the Greek word it's translating is a word oikos, which doesn't really mean family, or it doesn't mean family, mum and dad and 2.2 children. It doesn't mean that sort of, which is a bit of a fantasy anyway in our society, but it doesn't mean that. What it means is, better, a better translation would be household. A large, extended family. That was the biblical family. Yeah, mum and dad and kids, but auntie and uncle and, you know strange eccentric neighbour who lives next door who we, who we draw into our family. It was, it was a, an extended community. And, uh, and the word economy, if you split it in half, econos, where does the eco bit come from? Oh, hang on a minute, same word. It's the same Greek word, oikos. Uh, it means household. And the word nomos, another Greek word, means law. So the literal meaning of the word economics is the law of the household. And I think economists would be uh, usefully reminded that's what it means. Because in a household, like if I have my family around for dinner, I make sure that the food we have, call me old-fashioned, gets shared out equally. It would be unthinkable if my household was round for dinner that I had a plate of food and one of my a member of my household didn't have anything. It would be just it just wouldn't happen. We would say, "This is what we've got. We need to share it." Yes. Now that for me is true economics. Yeah. It's embarrassingly simple, but it is the message of the gospel. So. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, a big thank you to the panellists for their wisdom. That's it. That's it, folks. We're finished. <laughs>